You might not think of Home Depot as a leader in human-centered design, but 1.5 billion transactions a year has taught them a few things. Today, we'll talk with Kelly Robinson about how they're using UX and content strategy to keep customers happy and coming back for more. This is Design Driven, the podcast about using design thinking to build great products and lasting companies. Whether you're running a startup or trying something new inside a Fortune 1000, the tools, methods, and insights we talk about will help you create things people love. And now, your host, Jay Cornelius. Hey, everybody. We are happy to have Kelly Robinson from Home Depot with us today. She is a UX content strategist. She's spearheaded content and design initiatives across multiple industries from retailers like eBay to entertainment groups like the Blue Man Group. Her specialties include information architecture, UX writing, user research, and front-end development. She's also an animal welfare advocate who finds delight in songwriting, camping, and spooky stories. Kelly, welcome to the show. Thank you. Really glad to be chatting today. Yeah, I'm glad you could join us. So um, what's going on at Home Depot? What are you working on? What are you excited about? Some really ex- exciting stuff going on right now. So um, a couple of the projects I'd like to talk about um, include chatbots. So um, that's reaching a couple different types of audiences. So let's say you're in the store, you're wanting to um, find something, you're having a hard time, you can just pull up um, a chatbot on your phone and it's going to direct you to the specific island bay you're you're seeking your product in. So that's coming soon. Um, yeah, cool. From a content strategy perspective, I've been working on some flows for that. So um, what sort of questions are people going to ask? And then how do we best address those questions? And the idea is really to be conversational, um, make it feel like maybe you're talking to a real person, but uh, make it obvious that it's a bot at the same time. We obviously don't want to be misleading or cause any types of confusion. So, um, there's also going to be a product focused chat bot. So right now I'm working on a flow with, um, washers and dryers. So for instance, what sort of questions do people have when they're shopping for a washer? Washer and dryer on Home Depot. Um, what are their delivery questions? What, what do they not understand about maybe the specs? And then um, surfacing answers to those questions in a way where they can just quickly plug in um, a question. They would get an immediate response, and then they don't have to necessarily um, talk to a real person, but they would have the opportunity to if they wanted to at any time during the process. So leaving that line of communication open, but just giving them some more options. So I'm really excited about those two things that are in the pipeline. Um, from a content strategy perspective, it's really exciting. Yeah, I bet. Um, it seems like um, writing that line or finding that line between knowing that it's a bot, but still mm-hmm. sounding like a friendly human is probably a, a really tricky thing to do. How are you doing that? Right. So it starts with the introduction. Maybe um, we say I'm the Homer bot, for example, or um, the store finder might might have its own particular name. And then um, here are some ways that I can help you today. And just um, instead of having these types of robotic or repetitive responses, like I could not find that item. I could not find that item. We really try to randomize it and have like, no, could, couldn't find that, but maybe my friend in an orange apron can help you today. Or, um, I'm sorry, couldn't find what you're looking for. Maybe you could try, um, putting in a different type of product or you know, d- d- definitely randomizing it a little bit. And, um, yeah, j- just, just keeping it friendly, keeping a conversational tone. Um, it applies to chatbots. It, it applies to a lot of what we're doing really, um, a big initiative in content strategy with Home Depot, over the last year and beyond has really been making the content feel more um, 
authentic, personal, conversational. Mm-hmm. We just want to add warmth to what we're doing from um, things like instructions to tooltips to error messages even. D- done, I've probably rewritten about 200 error messages since I started here. It's, uh, that's, a, that's a big one. Wow, yeah, yeah. Microcopy is super important. I, so yes. it's, I guess that's one of the easy places to start is like what are the basic kind of simple interactions that you have and, and how do you make those feel more friendly or, or more human? Let's see. Um, a lot of times it's well, – I'll take an error message, for example. We want to really um, help somebody identify what the problem is, um, explain to them in a human way how they can go about solving the problem, and um, just expressing sympathy. Um, sometimes, you know, just – Oops, might sound human, but it's not really the way that you want to talk to somebody when maybe um, their order wasn't processed and they just spent like 30 minutes putting it together, you know, something yeah, like that. So I think it oops sounds context, a little too casual for that. Yeah. Context is important, right? If, if you can't add something to a list, maybe that's more of an oops scenario. But if something really went wrong, it's going to frustrate somebody. We have to be a lot more empathetic with, with our tone. Um, we obviously have these space constraints too. Um, there are scenarios where we, um, maybe can't make an alert or an error message really long. So we have to, um, make it really scannable, easy to absorb quickly, but also keep that empathy in line with the message. So that's, um, that's something that can be challenging, but it's fun on my end to figure out that right balance. Yeah, I bet. So when you and I met some time ago, we were chatting about the, you know, the, the composition of the typical Home Depot audience and how some of it are professional contractors and people who are in the store maybe on a daily basis. And mm-hmm. then there's the weekend warriors who are just trying to you know, maybe fix up their patio or shop for a washer and dryer. So how do those different audiences play into the types of messaging that you use? Is that a consideration or what are your thinking around that? It is. And we really try to personalize a lot of the content. And um, definitely professionals are are huge. So um, in terms of, let's see, store sales, it's a huge percentage, not as much online. But what we're really trying to do is um, have a larger outreach in terms of the types of uh, features that we're presenting on the website, the types of content that we're creating. So it really um, adapts to different types of audiences. So for example, with pros right now, we know that they come um, to HomeDepot.com potentially wanting to seek out different stores in their area. Somebody in Atlanta, for example, may have um, four or five different stores that they shop at. We want to be able to surface inventory to them quickly. So we're working on ways to do that. We also know that they tend to reorder maybe more frequently than somebody who's just shopping for a single appliance or um, like the Weekend Warrior you were um, talking about. So maybe having a way of surfacing the reorder options to them a lot more easily. And when it comes to communicating to different um, types of audiences, we know that some people who are accessing, let's say, um, a product landing page, product information page, they know exactly what they want. They don't necessarily have any questions about it. And our, um, the type of content that we present to them may be a little different from somebody we have identified either as a pro um, or somebody who may be a lot more knowledgeable in a specific area. So I guess a, a common example would be plumbing. So let's say we have 
enough information about somebody to identify that they are a plumber. Either they have self-identified or just from their purchase history, it's obvious this person knows a lot about plumbing. Well, we're probably not going to um, do a lot of like product identification, like, hey, here's um, some getting started with plumbing types of guides for them. And that's not really going to be useful to them. But somebody who's maybe um, tackling a project for the very first time, we would maybe want to find ways to communicate to them like, hey, we're here for you. We want to um, help you um, figure out the best way to tackle this project on your own. We want to give you confidence and empower you. So that tone is going to change a lot in addition to the types of content that we might be showing someone. Yeah, sure. So you mentioned testing and um, doing a lot of research and figuring out how you're going to message people and what type of content to display at what point. Can you talk a little bit about that process and what the results have been in terms of maybe um, higher uh, retention rates or more sales or what kind of results are you looking for? All right. So um, I guess I'll, I'll maybe just talk generally about our um, research process and, and testing process and how it, it um, takes form in the context of our um, user experience team. And then maybe I can go into some specific examples. So, yeah, that'd be um, great. Okay, great. So uh, one thing that I'm really excited about, recently we have formed a usability team within the user experience team. So um, I hired a couple um usability analysts over the past couple months. And so they're doing a lot more in-depth research and analysis to really understand our customers. So um, a traditional type of persona might be developed from some of the research they're doing. They do um, interviews, um, some are uh, remote interviews, some are in-person, some are moderated um, in types of um, Inter types of tests. Let's see, they do shop alongs, which are really cool. That's um, where you would actually go to someone's home and observe uh, the way that they would interact with different types of retailers, whether they're looking to do a home improvement project or something else. And so they've been doing a lot of cool stuff. So are you um, looking, are you watching them shop other competitive sites or competitive retailers or like product or companies or what are you watching yes. them shop? Yes, it could, it could be. It could be um, other retailers. Um, it could be Home Depot. Just to understand how they want to interact um, with certain types of features, maybe um, how they would go about adding things to their cart, how they would go about adding lists, storing information. Um, just some really interesting behavior in terms of talking to people and actually watching them. You know, for example, yeah, so you're watching them not just on your own site and your own mm -hmm. product, but on not just competitors, but kind of wherever they might be shopping and seeing what their behavior patterns are. Right. Sometimes we're surprised by some of the patterns that we see. They yeah, um, that. they don't necessarily always go along with our, our expectations. So yeah, that, that can be really educational. Um, and then what, what I do more on, on my end as a, as a content strategist, when I'm trying to research, um, either in preparation for a test or a preparation for a certain type of initiative is, um, maybe talk to some call center associates to figure out what their pain points are. What are people calling them about? Um, looking through some of the most frequently, um, asked questions through the chat dialogues, um, doing some stakeholder research, talking to different business units within Home Depot, um, doing some competitive analysis, looking at what's been tested before, looking at um, online data through things like Omniture, 4C, um, Clicktail. So 4C is, is 
um, just for context, what we use um, to get feedback from our customers. So right. there's a there's a wealth of content through there. Um, Omniture is what we use for um, a lot of our web analytics. So um, now just just an example of the way that I recently used Omniture. I wanted to figure out what sorts of questions are people asking their phone. Um, in order to learn about or find out about certain types of products. So I, so many people are asking like, what is the name of this thing? Like I have this like chandelier and there's a thing on it. I'm not sure what it's called. Or, you know, I have like, what is, what is that thing that I put on my door? You know, and we're, we're taking these types of, um, interactions and then thinking, how can we shape an experience based on that? So, um, from, from my point of view, that's a lot of the types of, um, research that I might do. And then the usability team would be more, um, in depth, and then when it comes to, to testing, um, they're also involved in um, helping us really set up tests from the UX um, team in terms of designers and um, content strategists here in-house. We um, do a lot of unmoderated tests through um, usertesting.com, a couple other platforms I think we're experimenting with. But how that tends to take shape is um, if, if for something small, like I, I want to maybe test out some of the new, the new fulfillment language we're using. When I say fulfillment, like things like pick up in store, you know, have it shipped to you, all these different options. Um, I've tested a lot of that because I want to make sure that we're communicating it in a way that people understand. So, um, just asking, putting together a prototype, um, maybe having people compare different types of messaging, compare different types of interactions with the content to get a sense of, is it clear? What do we need to change? Um, are we maybe assuming too much of people, not assuming enough, the, the, those types of things, and then um, mm -hmm. reshaping the content, the design, based on what we see, based on how people are struggling? Yeah. So are you testing like all the way down to like individual words and phrases on, on pages or on different screens in the mobile app? We are. We are. Sometimes it's... Um, it's a lot more comprehensive. It's more testing. Are people able to understand and interact with a certain type of design? Is it intuitive enough? Um, other times, what I really love to do is get a sense of um, maybe comparing different types of phrases for how we would describe something. So um, an example would be we have this um, experiment we are doing. We're trying to um, think of a way to offer a same-day delivery to certain types of markets. And so how do, how do we go about communicating that without potentially um, misrepresenting the process or over-delivering or, you know, say, saying something that wouldn't necessarily be, be accurate or right. um, lead to misperceptions. So that's a, that's a big, big part of it. Just um, testing out a few different combinations of even how we label these types of things to ask people, how, how do you perceive this? What does this mean to you? And then, um, seeing how they're able to interact with it. Does it meet their expectations? Once they get to the card, do they see what they thought they would see? Or is it something completely different? Um, if we are describing a process in terms of like a few bullet points, um, is there anything in that set of bullet points that makes people go, whoa, that <laughs> I didn't expect that. Or, um, that, that doesn't really seem like, uh, how I would want the process to work out. And then sometimes we'll, um, adjust things based on, based on those perceptions. I think, um, yeah, we, we, I think we have to be careful in how we interpret the results, too. A big part of it is yeah, uh, sure. we we want to make sure that based on, let's say, the first two or three people, they may struggle with something. It doesn't necessarily mean that 
that group is representative of everyone who's going to be interacting with the experience. Mm -hmm. So we try not to, we try to use the unmoderated testing results as guidance on how we can help improve something to help maybe um, identify a struggle, identify where something is unclear. Um, But we also don't want to make these grand assumptions like, well, because we observed this in two people, that means that people think this way or people approach shopping this way. Cause we could be totally off if, you know, we were to do a larger survey. You yeah. Know, Cause two people is a know. pretty small sample, right? Right. And, and, and a lot of times uh, we may do a test and we um, put it in front of, I, w- I would say on average, um, somewhere between eight and 15 people for a particular type of test. If we're testing maybe two things against each other, it would be like maybe six to eight people in one group, six to eight people in the other group. Sure. Um, that tends to be a pretty average sample size for the types of tests that I might run. And all of those people, I'm, I'm assuming, would have similar personas, right? So you're not testing somebody who's a professional electrician against somebody who can't figure out what that thing on their chandelier is called. It could be a pretty random sample, or we could actually um, set up the testing in a way where there are screening questions to um, get the type of, let's see, group that we may be seeking. So, for example, maybe we want to talk to people who have um, just started a kitchen remodel because we want to get a sense of, um, you know, if, if they go through the remodeling process, is the information, does the information feel accessible to them? Are they, are they um, right. finding what they're seeking? And so we're actually able to um, ask the type of screening questions, you know, are you, um, like what, what, what sorts of home improvement projects do you plan on tackling in the next three months would be a common one or what sort of, um, remodeling projects might you currently be undergoing? So, um, if we're looking to basically test just homeowners, then that could be a screening question too. If we want to really expand our audience, then maybe we wouldn't have as many specific screening questions, but we, we do try to get to some pros through that way also, um, just in terms of trying to narrow down the test takers. And uh, if there's, if there's a really big pool of people out there who are wanting to take these types of tests, then we can get pretty specific. So as you're thinking through, um, how a design is going to lay out. And once you get some testing results back, um, how solid is the content? Are you still dealing with working content or like placeholder content at that point? And I mean, obviously you're not doing something like Laura Mipsum all over the app or the website, but what are you doing in terms of developing content and using placeholders to get you through the process so you can make sure you're on the right track? That's a, that's a great question. So we typically start off when we're, um, when I'm thinking about, a design and how the content is going to fit into the larger story with a designer. I'm, um, yeah, I'm definitely not thinking about placeholder content. We're thinking about more functional content. So the idea is when we're putting it into a prototype to begin with, we want to um, experiment with it first just to see um, does it fit into the space the way that we expected, for example. Um, maybe a tooltip isn't the best use of this space, that, that kind of a thing. So using, that's why using working content is really important than, um, maybe like content goes here or Laura Mipsum or paragraph goes here. Um, so we, so we get a sense of, we just have a rough draft to begin with. Okay. So what information do we want to convey? We know that we have to, from the business, um, stakeholders point of view, we have to, um, really communicate these three points. And then we know that the users are really, um, caring about these three points. So we have, um, let's say six pieces of information that we want to convey. Let's actually figure out how to put those pieces of information together in the prototype. 
and um, have a somewhat polished but not perfect way of communicating it. So at first it would take on a very draft-like form. We would um, work with it to maybe figure out how to clarify the message more, figure out how to um, cut down unnecessary things, figure out how to make it more scannable from that point. And then when we feel pretty good about it, um, that's a, a point where we would start maybe putting it in front of some people to get their take on it. So, um, yeah, there's, there's that whole sense of using working content from the very beginning. Um, I've, I've heard the term proto content also used before. I like that mm-hmm. too. So just saying, you know, it doesn't have to be polished, but it has to be, um, functional relevant. It has to be something that, uh, would be somewhat close to you would actually be using in, in reality. So, um, once we yeah, put so you're that, kind of testing like content length and like mm-hmm. as you were saying scannability, how well mm-hmm. it fits into the overall aesthetic of of that particular screen and the message you're trying to communicate, right? Exactly. And uh, once we put it in front of people, we realize how we might want to refine some of that messaging. Then we just go from there. Um, in some cases, do some follow up testing if it's a particularly complicated type of uh, project. Right. So. When you're thinking about the the content and the role that it plays in the overall experience that you have, um, how are you looking at the success of of you know a particular piece of content or or the voice and tone as a whole? How are you measuring that? And and really, like, how do you think about success beyond a conversion or a successful checkout? Yeah, that, that's been. Um something that we're really, um, looking into, it's valuable for us to look beyond conversion. I mean, conversion is so important. It's a very traditional and measurable and tangible way of measuring success. And it sounds, it can sound really great if you're like, you know, we released this feature and conversion increased by this many basis points. It sounds exciting, but, um, in reality, we really want to think about measuring our success beyond that. Um, we actually had a, a great speaker from Clicktail come in and talk to us last week. And something that really resonated with me that she said was, um, you know, conversion does not equal cust- customer experiences. She mentioned that somebody could have a transaction, but they could actually have a really negative experience that led up to that transaction. So we're thinking about it a lot more holistically and um, some some ways that we may be able to get a sense of um have the designs that we put out there actually led to a better experience, a a change in perception, all these different things. It could be um, we see um, a a decrease in returns. We see a decrease in cancellations. Maybe when it comes to um, the call volume at the call center or the chat volume, there's a decrease in certain areas. We can measure the types of interactions that people have um, with different areas of of the site, with, with the app, um, for example, um, we released a one-page checkout recently, and I'm continuing to release that in various stages. But you know, just being able to see the way that people are interacting with it—that that their checkout time has decreased so significantly—we consider that a success, regardless of whether it's actually um, increasing conversion. I mean, it, it has increased conversion, but you know, just just looking at it a lot beyond that. Um, I, I mentioned 4C earlier. Also, it's just a way to um, get what sort of feedback is coming through. Um, are people complaining about the same things that they were complaining about before? Um, so a lot of those, those types of behavioral things. And a lot of the work that I do, it actually ties into to brand perception. So I was talking about things like um, 
like warmth, for example, making content um, have more authenticity and, and warmth. I think those things get especially hard to measure. But um, I think when we're looking in the the grander scheme of things and how it all fits together, you know, even even when we look at some. Um, some stuff that the marketing teams are looking into. They have like, um, you know, sentiment types of data that they, that they collect over time. So we can probably get Mm -hmm. some clues from them, um, when they're looking at these types of, of sentiment streams and how people are perceiving our brand that, um, you know, it can come from different types of experiences that sentiment could come from a store experience or it could come from, um, what we're doing in online UX. Yeah, so obviously, you know, having better content can have a lot of positive repercussions. So, mm-hmm. is the decision to uh, maybe work on a particular group of content or particular screens or how you're doing some messaging, um, where is that typically driven by? Is that somebody from from customer service coming to you and saying, "Hey, we get a lot of complaints in this area. Can you do something to make it better?" Or is it by revenue management who are looking to um, increase sales or increase like uh, per cart? um, averages or is it all of those things? Like what's the motivator? It's a, it's pretty complex. Yeah. It comes from, um, several different sources. So, um, a, a common type of uh, process might be, uh, we have a product manager that might be, um, focused on a particular work stream, for example. And when I say, when I say work stream, it would be like, um, like commerce, so carton checkout, um, on homedepot.com would be an example of a work stream. Um, the one that I'm most focused on is, um, let's see, um, browse and online shopping. So it would be like search product information pages, product detailed pages. So those dedicated product managers would either be doing, um, competitive research. They would be looking to see what the customer pain points are. They would be, uh, maybe talking to different types of business stakeholders to understand their needs. Um, Let's see, just to, to get a sense of what they would want to put on the product roadmap. And then once um, something is on the roadmap, then it gets translated to us. That is a um, that is a, the most common path, I would say, to um, how a project materializes. Of course, there are um, all sorts of different ways. So sometimes UX uh, will drive a particular type of project. We'll identify a problem, um, think about how we can solve it. And then go from there. I think um, from my end, yeah, I might see how people are struggling just based on what I um, see through Omniture or or 4C or from talking to call center associates. Um, An example would be like uh, we were looking into uh, really making some improvements on the help section in terms of making content um, easier to find. Also, just um, getting rid of duplicate content, improving some of the design there and just, uh, actually going to the call center and listening to some of, um, the calls to kind of have like this tag along, um, thing you can do where you put on headphones and understand how people are struggling. And that actually translated into some user stories eventually. So, um, I guess the, the research that, um, the usability team is doing really ties into that too. So there's this big appliance process rehaul that we're lo- looking into right now. A lot of that was, um, one of our usability analysts went out and just talked to a lot of people who had purchased appliances either on Home Depot or or beyond, and um, really understood where some of the strugglers struggle struggles excuse me were coming from, and then we were able to translate those into stories, and um, that that was really cool because we were looking at things from more of um of an end to end perspective than rather than um, a work stream perspective. So, um, I think it's, that's, that's one of the areas where we're trying to really strike the right type of balance too, is that we have these 
work streams that are a little more focused, more more granular. And I think that has its importance. It certainly has its place. We have to think about things from an end-to-end point of view, too. Um, mm-hmm. It's kind of like a, you think about how you know, your, your heart and lungs and digestive system and brain all function together and how it's important to maybe focus on one sometimes, but you can't ignore how they're all interconnected and they affect each other in so many different ways. Right, because the entire system has to work. And if mm-hmm. one piece breaks down, obviously that's a problem. But if the entire system breaks, you know, that's, that's a much, much bigger problem. So speaking about how the teams work together, um, talk about your process a little bit. You talk about your your team structure and kind of what things you're doing there and and how maybe experimenting with some of that stuff is yielding some good results. Yeah, I'm I'm lucky to be on this team that's really experimental in terms of how we approach different types of things. So even, even in terms of how the team itself is structured. So let's see. When I joined, the the work streams were a little different than they are now. So they've tried not just shuffling the people around, but um, how we really categorize different types of of the work streams that we set up. Um, in terms of things like uh, how we handle reviews, so for instance, we used to have these Friday alignment you mean like product meetings. Product reviews. Or, um, how we how, how we're reviewing each other's work. Yeah. Right. So um, team reviews. Yeah. Team reviews. Right. So. We used to have these um, long Friday afternoon meetings. As the team grew, uh, it was it became a little bit challenging because, um, I mean, not everyone is able so to showcase context, their stuff. For how big is the team? Let's see. So I want to say we have around 18 designers right now, two content strategists, um, and then five people on the usability team. So it's, it's really grown significantly. Yeah, that's a good yeah. size team. Yeah, and then a few managers also. Um, right, of course. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you got to have the managers. Got got to have them absolutely. Um, yeah, so I, th- I think as as the team grows, you you can't have this one size fits all approach anymore to to how we um, structure things like our review sessions. If it gets too big, then not enough people are really getting their voice heard. Not enough people are able to showcase what they're doing, and. Mm-hmm. Um, We've, we've really tried to restructure how we collaborate. Like we, we use Slack a lot. And so we had one Slack channel that was set up for just reviews, um, how we just um, showcasing your work, getting feedback on it. We still use that a little bit, but what we're experimenting now is more of a, more of a structure of like on a weekly basis, we have a team that showcases their work to a collection of representatives that come from other teams. So, um, for example, today I was looking at what the, the digital decor team was doing. They have, um, some really, um, innovative stuff going on. And so it's, it's able to, it's a way to, to give your feedback, but also really get an eye on what the other teams are working on. I think as we have continued to grow, um, it's, it's easy and it's just the nature of, of a large company, of a large operation to start to feel a little bit um, siloed, like um, you don't really have the type of insight into each other's work that you would prefer to have. And, you know, right. that's, I've, I've been guilty of that, of that too, maybe just uh, not sharing things with everyone who I could have shared them with just because it didn't, it didn't occur to me <laughs> in a lot of cases. So I think setting up that process where things are going to naturally occur to you more and getting more in the, in the swing of, um, 
yeah, having having spotlights on different types of projects, being able to really have the types of um, information sharing sessions where we can exchange ideas, where we can really foster each other's creativity. Um, that's really important. So we've, we've experimented with different types of structures for doing um, that sort of thing in addition to the way that the, the teams themselves are structured. Yeah, so it's really just kind of building collaboration into the culture and building that into your regular workflow. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And uh, it goes beyond even even UX. So just to give you an example, there's a uh, the enterprise UX team at the the Home Depot. So they um, would work on a lot of uh, store types of operations, uh, maybe like merchandising software, store kiosks, for example. And there, then there's the online UX team. We're, we're actually in different buildings, so we don't interact face-to-face that much, but that doesn't mean that we can't have a wealth of resources to share with each other. So we really try to collaborate with, with them through, through Slack, for example, or through even just, um, grabbing some coffee with somebody and being like, Hey, what are you working on? Um, I collaborate, um, with marketing on, on some, some of their projects, even though they're in a, in a different building. Um, sometimes it wouldn't even occur to me on a daily basis to, to get, um, marketing input on something or maybe align with them on the types of style guides that they're using. But then, um, yeah, just definitely trying to make an effort to make that more of my, um, more of my process when I'm, when I'm analyzing content, um, when I'm thinking about it from the larger picture. Yeah. Speaking of style guides, um, how standardized is a lot of the the stuff that you're working with? I mean, obviously Home Depot has got a very strong brand standard and, mm-hmm. you know, that color orange is everywhere and you, but you also have to be careful that you're not kind of oversaturating things with, with too much brand and you still keep, let the content come through. So I'm, I'm curious, like how you work with the, uh, maybe the design teams, the marketing team, um, the UX teams to, to find that right balance to where things, things feel right when you're using the app or when you're using the website. Yeah. So, so in, in terms of standards, yeah, there are, um, there's been a lot of work on standards the, the past couple of years. And so there were, um, some guidelines when I, when I came in, in terms of, um, content standards, um, initially that were, um, kind of inherited from different areas, some from, from branding, some from more of the, the editorial side. And, um, the other content strategist and I, her, her name also happens to be Kelly. So we're team Kelly. Um, we wanted <laughs> nice. to, we really wanted to, um, take those, but really interpret, okay, how does the, what does this mean for, for UX? And so we actually, um, put together what is called, um, or what was forming to be called the, the, the orange library. So it's a combination really of, um, content standards, but also the design standards that other people have worked on are, are factored into, um, the orange library. So, um, it's basically a a place where ideally there is an intersection of content standards, design standards. So a lot of what we were doing was taking some of these just, um, editorial guidelines, but also really trying to define, okay, how does the, what the voice and tone that we want to use fit into this larger context? So Mm -hmm. an example would be, we came up with these mini guides. So it would be like best practices for writing, um, error messages, tool tips, transactional emails, modals, um, that type of thing, how that all fits into the way that the design team is, um, coming up with the, the designs for those. And so there are different types of like, um, templatized things, different types of standards that the design team can, can grab from and, um, and their documentation. So, um, for example, like, um, yeah, but buttons, modals, forms, um, you know, 
let's see what what does what does this mean for full width brows that that type of thing mm-hmm. um, how how it all fits together um, in terms of how we're presenting everything out visually, but then also how we communicate it. We want, we don't want to necessarily see those things as absolutely distinct entities. We want them to, um, feel like they're coming together in a, in a set of standards that everyone can access. Right. So you have visual standards and you've got kind of interaction to, uh, pattern standards mm-hmm. and you've got your voice and tone guidelines and all mm-hmm. of those things kind of fit together to create this overarching standard of how things are going to be communicated and displayed uh, regardless of the property, small screen, large screen, or whatever. Exactly, yes. So I, I think we've all, at least here in Atlanta, we've all been familiar with the work that's been done over at MailChimp with their voice and tone standards. I think Kate's done a great job over there. Do you have something yes. similar? That's it, it, Is your stuff available to the public, or uh, how much of that is something that you can talk about or, or share with the outside world in, in order to kind of get an idea of how a company at the scale of Home Depot is actually solving these problems? Right. So the, the standards that we put together are currently um, just in place on a on a private server, but that doesn't mean that we wouldn't be able to eventually share some of it out. I think um, especially some of the, the many guides that we put together, I can see those at some point maybe being publicly accessible. I don't really see that there's any like proprietary issues with some of those. So yeah, a lot of it's... Um, industry best practices too. So it's not necessarily something that would be super unique to Home Depot, but it's, it's really a combination of taking some of those industry best practices when it comes to, um, to tone the way you convey a message and then thinking about how that relates to the actual Home Depot brand to make it more specific. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We're seeing more companies do that. You know, like Salesforce has released their design system. I think LinkedIn is starting to be a little bit more open with the way that they're approaching things. And the concept of industry standards is actually really interesting. If we think about the web as a whole, uh, it's still a pretty young uh, industry, right? But construction has been around since the beginning of time. And it's a lot of times those standards and um, the, the the things where you have an inspector come and look at your building to make sure that it's up to code before mm-hmm. you can actually have anybody occupy it. I'm kind of interested to see where the web goes in terms of developing those types of standards for things like accessibility and mm-hmm. interaction patterns to make sure that we're building things in a way that's going to be durable when it actually gets out into the wild. So. Um, seeing how a company like Home Depot is approaching the way they're releasing product is obviously going to be a big contributing factor to how those overall standards emerge. Yes, I think it's really important for standards to be flexible and adaptable. The more that we would learn about, for example, accessibility, that might change how we approach a certain type of standard. Uh, Last year, my team did an accessibility audit where we just um, took some of the accessibility guidelines, just split them up among the different teams, and then really took a deep dive into the website to see um, how we may be um, adhering to those or maybe not adhering as much as we would like, and then coming up with a plan to, um, to address those. And, um, yeah, just uh, with, with content or, or design, really, um, as, as we learn more about people, as we learn more about um, our customer base, about how people um, are interacting with what we're doing, um, we really want to be able to take things and, and adapt them and make them, make them flexible, make the documentation flexible, too. Just always think of it as a, as a working document that we would always want to be um, receptive to change with. Yeah, it's a living guide. So mm-hmm. I think that's a it's a really important thing to understand is that you have to always be learning and always be adapting and always be 
um, kind of updating your approach and, and your standards based on you know the current state of things. Definitely, yes. Well, Kelly, it's been great having you on the show today. I would love to have you back at some point and just kind of get an update about how things are working at the depot. Um, maybe talk about some stuff that you've released recently. I think that'd be a lot of fun. So if somebody wanted to get in touch with you and learn more about what you're doing or connect and kind of uh, chat some of these things through, what's the best way to get in touch? Let's see, they could contact me on LinkedIn. If you just search for Kelly Robinson Home Depot, I will pop up there. Um, on Twitter, I am Kelly Reverie, all one word. And so um, yeah, definitely feel free to reach out. I would, I would love to talk to anyone about content strategy, design, how they intersect, um, any of that good stuff. Yeah, so I really love what you're doing with the podcast. Thank you. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Well, I'm glad you glad to have you on the show. And like I said, it'd be great to have you back on again in the future. Absolutely. So, um, That's it for today, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. All right. Thanks a lot, Jay. That's it for today. Thanks for listening to Design Driven. We're glad you enjoy the show. Have comments, questions, or an idea that you'd like us to cover? Point your browser to designdriven.biz and click Contact Us on the top of your screen. We'd love to hear from you. Tell your friends and colleagues about the Design Driven Pod. Post on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or send them an email. And tell them to go to designdriven.biz or wherever they find their podcasts. Until next time, remember what Thomas Watson, founder of IBM, said, Good design is good business.